0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to All In. My name is Arzett, the Eric of Faramore.
1: And I am the Settler's new allies. And
0: wait, Eric, is that a handheld radio? Huh? Oh, oh, yeah. It, see, you know how in the Oxenfree games, you can do all these crazy supernatural things with radios by tuning into the right frequency? I mean,
1: yeah, of course I know. Oxenfree 2 just came out a few days ago. We're even featuring it this week in our indie showcase, but that is honestly all the reason more you shouldn't play with it.
0: Oh, come on, Seth. What's the worst that could happen?
1: I mean, you could open a time tear to the past and allow... And you've already
0: done it. Holy cow, Seth! Look at all these classic games from the past coming through the tear! Jurassic Park! Toma! It's and gex we
1: we didn't need time travel to do that eric limited run games is already bringing all of those games back themselves plus a whole lot more i mean today we're counting down the top five announcements from this week's lrg3 presentation
0: it it seems the tear now goes back all the way to exactly 40 years ago that 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 could only mean yes the Famicom is trying to come through the portal. I'm, I'm, I'm retuning the radio as hard as I can, it's, but it's, it's not enough to stop it.
1: No, clearly the only thing that can stop a complete Famicom incursion now is to do a full all-in retrospective on the iconic console for its 40th anniversary. The past and future of gaming is in our hands now, Eric. <sighs> I'm ready. All right, then let's save the world. It's time to go... All in. That's right, everybody. With the world saved, we are here now for another episode of All In a Nintendo podcast, the weekly Nintendo variety show, we're reaching every week. No shells left unturned and no point is left unearned. And uh, maybe we've been playing just a little bit too much Free 2. Maybe that's <laughs> been on our mind a little bit. Um, there's, <laughs> there's certainly a lot to unpack there, and we're going to be getting to that uh, a little bit later on in the show, of course. But, uh, but Eric, before any of that, the most world-ending, important thing that we do each and every week to kick off the show is thank our patrons. Yeah, we've got our to friends. tune the radio to our patrons. That's right. That's right. We need to thank all of the people, all the friends and supporters over there at patreon.com slash podcasts. Thanks to everybody who supports us over there, especially our golden banana tier supporters like Rob Yapel, third strongest mole, Sean, Shano, Baggins, Ashton, Tim A, a.k.a. Neo Prime 33 a.k.a. Nintendo Dad Number no. 4, Matt, Shy Guy, City Murray, Phelan Ward, Bill Tucker, Marcus O'Neill, Liam D, Bowza, Gamer Jason, and Andrew Wilkins. Huge shout out to so our Golden Banana tier supporters. But moving into our Triforce tier. Big thanks to Josh Vaughn, the godfather of Tingle Love Tuesday. Big thanks to John Datfast Cummins of the Retrologic Podcast. This was the on topic retro podcast. The Globe Trotten jet set Nintendo Hub and Sparky of the Nintendo Hub over on YouTube. Adam Caparello of the Retro Groove Podcast, as well as Rock 1982 on YouTube, Shy Guy, the other half of our Shy Guy mod squad. Thank you, Shy Guy. Daniel Inahosa, Dan and Luma, Solo Something, and The Legend himself. The legend himself, Uncle Randy. Randy, 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 Uncle Randy, 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 Randy. Thank you, Uncle Randy. Love you, Uncle Randy. Appreciate you, Uncle Randy. Thanks to everybody who supports us on Patreon. You can head over there and get a seven day free trial. Uh, to our golden banana tier, most popular tier, gets you access to two exclusive weekly podcasts, gets you shouted out here on the shows, and a whole lot more. Uh, big thanks to everybody that supports us over there. At Triforce tier, you also get discounts on our merch at bit.ly slash allinmerch. We do have merch as well. And uh, if you want to wear a shirt or a sticker or a, get yourself a mug, Show you
0: can Show your
1: all-in love. That's right. That's right. Throw a few, few bones our way for our, uh, our hard work. But if you don't have bones to throw, that's okay, too. Uh, you can support us entirely for free by dropping some words on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and Spotify, uh, Spotify five-star ratings. But I was going to say Audible. Um, but nobody's done that this week, Eric, unfortunately. Um, no new reviews to shout out. But that just means you got to get in now. Get in now this weekend. Right now, while you're listening. It's super easy. Head over to your podcast app and review us, and we'll shout you out on the show. I promise. I'll do it. He, he'll, he'll, he'll do it. It's it's not a threat. He'll do it. I will do it. It's a promise. Uh, so thanks <laughs> to everybody who's done that so far. Thanks to you for doing it in the future. Um, a little bit of housekeeping here. Speaking of the Patreon, all of our patrons have access to the round two of our fantasy draft. Yes. Uh, with the Nintendo pals that we recorded this week uh, on Monday night under the, uh, you know, the guise of moonlight, we met on the middle of a moonlit bridge with our samurai swords drawn and we drafted uh, the second round of our fantasy league that began at the beginning of the year. And um, it was a lot of fun. Hopefully, you all have uh, already listened to it and and heard the games that uh, have been drafted or following along uh, over on the uh, Fantasy Critics site. Um, But one thing that we announced during that Mm -hmm. is that in our Discord, uh, we have decided on the punishment Uh, which is basically, it's it's based on community submissions. We put the call out, what kind of punishments would y'all like to see us endure? And we formed this punishment kind of around everything the community submitted.
0: Yeah, thank you guys for all the submissions. Uh, Unfortunately, there is no reality in which we could, you know, we're not going to lose anyway, but if the universe happened to align against us, there was no way that Seth was going to shave anything off his no. lovely head. And frankly, we didn't, we didn't want him to do that. We're just trying to punish ourselves, not the world at large here. Uh, yeah, no, no. N- Nobody should deprive the world of Seth's luscious hair. Uh, but we did come up with some really, really interesting stuff. And we have narrowed it down to a couple suggestions that we now want you guys to vote on. The main overarching theme is, considering we are talking about the best-reviewed games, this entire fantasy draft uh, is uh, centered around drafting the best-performing, highest-reviewed, most critically acclaimed games of the year. So, (laughs) as part of our punishment, we are going to be doing an end-of-year stream on the actual worst game on the Nintendo Switch that's safe for work. Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So we are going to be doing, the losing team will be doing a full game playthrough stream of Vroom in the Night Sky. But because that's not bad enough to play through the entirety of the worst game on the Switch, you guys are going to get to decide whether or not we do that uh, a, whether or not we have to do a full game playthrough of this game while wearing oven mitts, Mm-hmm. whether or not we have to do it in the most embarrassing garb possible, or under the stress of the one chip challenge. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So what we're going to do is we're going to put this in the, uh, there is a dedicated fantasy critic channel, um in our discord. So if you're not already in our discord and you would like to vote which of those punishments you would like us what 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 of that trauma you would like to inflict upon us. Yeah. Um that's going to be um that's going to be there in that channel and also in the Nintendo Pals channel. Now that's that's a Rogue Wasteland over there in in their discord. I don't know how they're how they're doing it, but what we're going to wind up doing once all the votes have been in, uh, we're going to, you know, compile uh all of the votes across all of the communities and the uh the highest you know uh the, the one with the most votes is going to be the one that uh that we do uh while playing Vroom in the Night Sky apparently a really bad game i looked at gameplay it didn't look that bad but apparently it's pretty bad so
0: yeah, yeah. and again we have to play through the entirety if we yep it is no it's not good enough for our uh, it's not good enough for our audience or the Nintendo PAL's audience to subject us to just a little bit of terribleness. We will be forced to stream the entirety of the game while suffering an additional punishment as voted on by you guys. We wanted to try to make these some very interesting stakes. I hope you guys continue to watch the updates of the Nintendo Pals versus the All-In Draft throughout the rest of the year. As a matter of fact, we have a few games releasing just next week that could potentially uh, tip the scales one way or another. It is something that Seth and I are very excited about to, uh, to see how it pans out for obvious reasons. But we are so glad that you guys have come along this journey with us. Again, that second half of our draft is already up in the patrons that you can get access to for just a dollar. Just a dollar. Just a dollar a month or for
1: free. If you do that free trial, uh, seven day free trial, you can literally go over there and, and hear that uh, right now, as well as like over a hundred back cataloged episodes of uh, all inside quest and the $2 hero cast, a uh, ton of content going up over there. And also quick update. One of the games that they did draft uh, this week was a game that just came out this week. The, uh, that Atelier Marie remake yeah. or whatever, um they only got five points for it though so far so not too bad yeah
0: i'm okay with uh, that you know
1: i'm all right with that
0: i'm okay we'll see (laughs) we'll see
1: how things go when pikmin 4 comes out though i have a feeling that might score pretty high so i'm a little scared of that
0: i have a feeling that might too yeah that demo was really fun We'll see. We'll see. But we got
1: that coming. Uh, Disney Illusion Island, which you and I drafted.
0: Yes, we did. Uh, is
1: also coming this month. So there's going to be a couple of interesting updates to uh, to keep an eye on in the very near future. Uh, but yeah, that's what's going on with Fantasy League. Uh, stay tuned for the Discord to vote on the, uh, the punishment with Vroom in the Night Sky. And uh, yeah, man, with all that out of the way, sir, what's been going on in your
0: world? <laughs> well, it's been a very... Interesting week. Of course, we have an indie showcase coming up a little bit later on in the show, very soon in the show, on Oxenfree 2, which just Mm -hmm. came out this past week on July 12th. So I don't want to talk about it too much here, obviously, Uh, but that certainly wasn't the only game that I've been playing over this past week. Of course, you know, I was very excited about the release of Pinball FX back on the sixth, and I have indeed spent quite a bit of time uh, playing uh, playing some pinball FX over the past week. I almost there like there's so many different tables. They got like the Adams Family and the Garfield and the Godzilla and Kong stuff that um that I've that I've almost already purchased. But honestly one of the free tables that comes with Pinball FX is honestly one of my favorite tables that Zen Studios has ever done. It's a pinball table called Sorcerer's Lair. And I've honestly just been playing the mess out of that. And one of the, one of the things I really like about Pinball FX is it, it incentivizes you to play the game over and over. Because you have this big, you know, kind of like uh, we're seeing in other arcade and other game compilations, uh, Pac-Man Museum Plus did this, and uh, Capcom Arcade Collection, version 1 and 2, I think did something similar to this. But you have this actual, ex- you know, somewhat explorable and customizable arcade that you can choose the games from. And you have this little pinball room that you can... Uh, deck out with various little accoutrements and accessories and and things like that and you get these accessories by getting lifetime scores in the pinball tables so once you've achieved an ultimate score of you know like 15 million 50 million 80 million you'll get these new uh, accessories that you can use to customize your your room with so it's a fun little way that they incentivize you playing uh playing through the game more so if you want to have like a big godzilla themed pinball room then you can get those bunch you can get all those bunch of different tables and play them forever and have a big godzilla themed pinball arcade so uh, i've been basically just doing that with sorcerer's lair just playing it uh i i got into i got fairly high up on the top score although i think i've been shot down quite a bit uh, in the intervening days but still you know definitely check it out. The base game is a free download. Like I said, last week, it comes with three free tables, including Sorcerer's Lair, uh, Fish Fish Tales or something from the Williams Pinball Collection is another free table. And then another one of their uh, Zen Pinball Originals, Wild West Rampage, is the third free pinball table. So check it out. They've got, like I said, a bunch of other Tables that you can download uh, individually or or by pack. They've got like Shrek and How to Train Your Dragon and and all kinds of stuff. So uh, I'll be I'll probably be pushing Pinball FX for quite a while. But I did have quite a bit of fun with it over this past week. Um, in addition to that, honestly, like I've I'm still playing Mortal Kombat Ultimate for some reason. Like I just. I can't put it down. As a matter of fact, let me just check real quick. Uh, yeah, I've now put a hundred and fifteen plus hours oh into my God. Mortal Kombat 11 <laughs> since I picked that up a few weeks ago. Uh, I, I didn't realize how badly I was needing a real fighting, like a fighting game that I could really sink my teeth into over the past couple of years. So I'm glad to get that. Obviously, I'm super hype for. Mortal Kombat 1 coming out in just a few months. San Diego Comic-Con is coming next week, and we've been promised already more reveals and trailers there. Uh, obviously, they've been posting about the, the Mortal Kombat 2 movie that's now in production. Ed Boon is taking photos with all the, the actors and everything. So it's Mortal Kombat hype summer. Yay. And I'm here for it. But yeah because of that, I put 115 hours into Mortal Kombat 11 over the past few weeks. (laughs) Man, I didn't know it was like that. (laughs) You know me in fighting games, man, you do. But, uh, also still continuing to play AEW fight forever. Uh, I finally unlocked Mr. Brody Lee. That makes me really happy. I finally got him. And it's so cool because, uh, even with, Uh, you know, the decent amount of time that I spent with the game for our review a couple weeks ago, there are so many fun little secrets and Easter eggs that people are still finding within the games. And I've seen a couple dozen separate, you know, stuff you didn't know or, you know, hidden Easter eggs, hidden secrets within AEW Fight Forever. And it really is cool to see how detail centric and, you know, all the fun little stuff that they've crammed into this game. It really does feel like a throwback to the N64 era of wrestling games, which is exactly what they were going for. But all these, you know, fun little secrets and, and hidden details that people are continuing to find in the game just makes it that much more intriguing and, and entertaining to, to play. So uh, I've been continuing to go back to that. Uh, let me see what I got. Uh, Mortal Kombat, Pinball FX, oxen Free. Uh, All right, cool. The last game I'm going to shout out is one that you and I got a chance to play together this past week, Seth. Hmm. So sure enough, as Nintendo announced last week, Wave 5 of the Mario Kart 8 Deluxe Booster Course Pass released uh, just a few days ago, and turns out the game is still a lot of fun and you and i and all of your carpool gaming brethren we all got online the night that it launched uh July 11th the night that it launched a few days ago and we had ourselves a nice fun raucous night of kart racing yeah yeah, it was super fun.
1: Uh, we need to, pretty soon, it's it's weird. The way my life is right now, it's weird for me to schedule stuff like that. Uh, it's a lot easier for me to, like, jump in on already happening stuff, like what was happening with Carpool, uh, versus, like, hosting it myself. Um, and so I don't know when, but very soon I'm going to put together something for the all-in community to play these tracks. Um, I wanted to do it this week, haven't had time Um, I, and and in fact, I haven't had time to really play anything. Like the only things I'm going to be talking about is just this and Oxenfree too. That's literally it. (laughs) Um, so yeah, it's just been kind of crazy in my personal life, but I, uh, but yeah, they're they're great. The the tracks are really fun. Um, I think that Squeaky Clean Sprint or whatever it's called is like an instantly, you know, instantly one of the best. You know, it's an all-timer like right
0: away. Apparently, so. I'm really bad at that course too. <laughs> well, I was playing. I was so excited for Petey Piranha because, of course, he was one of the three new characters that was yeah. added. So that finally got me to move away from my girl Rosalina, who I typically choose and uh, I raced with PD Pirata that night. Uh, as most people raced with new characters, it was it was quite the 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 Wiggler fest for a while. Wiggler riding Wiggler uh, is clearly the new meta, but uh, I, I had to pick Pete. But man, is he heavy and hard to drift with. But still, I had a ton of fun. Thank you to everybody who came out that night and played with us. But we will be setting up uh, our own Mario Kart 8 Deluxe Wave 5 Booster Course Pass Racing Event Evening Playtime soon. We've got to find a better name for it though.
1: Yeah, we got to do that at some point soon. Um my my wife is is home on the weekend this weekend, so uh I'm probably not going to do anything this weekend, but early next week uh is probably going to be more so my jam. Maybe Monday night or something we can do it. Um, but we'll yeah stay tuned for that we'll we'll get that together pretty soon I know this weekend my wife and I are going to be playing uh, Splatoon because the the Splatfest is this weekend and yes, now with her new job she actually is home and off work on the weekend so uh, we usually don't get a chance to play Splatfest together so we're actually looking forward to it so be doing that too but but nice. yeah the, the the tracks are great. Uh, I think this is a really strong. You know, it's great to have stuff like Daisy Cruiser back and yeah. um, Koopa Cape, obviously, which of is one course. of my all-time favorite tracks. Two, and, yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, it was it was a really good drop. The new characters are cool. You know, it's a little bit weird that Kamek isn't a light uh, class weight class. He's a medium. Yeah, it's a little odd, but. Yeah, otherwise, yeah, really really cool. I I I like it a lot. The wiggler on a wiggler thing is funny because people have discovered <laughs> that um they've discovered that, you know, the the meta used to be Waluigi on, on the wiggler, wiggler card. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Um and they've discovered that, you know, while Wiggler is a heavyweight class as well, um he is the same like like statistically is exactly the same as Waluigi. So it's like, if you're going to be doing the meta anyways, it might as well be Wiggler on
0: a Wiggler. So, yeah. <laughs> I did see one video of everybody in the race uh, on a Wiggler on a Wiggler, but then they went yeah. to, I can't remember which course it was. It was from Wave 4, but one of the the adjustments they made, it was I think it was a Mario circuit or something, uh, from Wave 4, but one of the adjustments they made is a giant Wiggler comes out on lap three uh, oh, to, yeah. a, as an obstruction. So, I saw this video of like 10 different wiggler on a wiggler racers all just kind of like surrounding the huge wiggler on the racetrack, almost as if they were some kind of. Well, I mean, Maple Treeway has got that big old wiggler in it. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah they've got those couple of wigglers at the top of the tree. Yeah. They'll yeah, yeah. probably see videos from that too, but they were all surrounding this giant wiggler as if it was some kind of Mario Kart 8 Deluxe cult or something. It was hilarious. Yeah
1: yeah good it's good stuff i I have seen i agree it kind of sucks that uh sunset wilds doesn't actually set the sun anymore that's kind of lame yeah I don't really know why that is but otherwise i mean the the tour courses continue to to impress i think yeah. um i i like them you know I really like them all i i know like the the sort of um I don't know, variety, the way the court, the, the, the track like changes from lap to lap that that's either you love it or hate it. I I'm on the love it camp. I really, I have a, you know, it's the kind of thing where like your first run through that course is never going to go smoothly. (laughs) No, Right. But like, once you get to know it, it's really cool. I think adds like a really nice dynamic to the, the track layout. So it's really, you know, pick your poison, but, uh, but, but I think these continue to be really
0: strong. I thought it was a great wave. Yeah, yeah. Admittedly, like I still love the tour courses, but I I will say out of this batch of tour courses, there isn't one that really stands out for me necessarily. Uh, Like Sydney Sprint, I absolutely love. and uh, That's Vancouver for me. That Vancouver Velocity is really good. Vancouver is pretty cool. Uh, But uh, I don't know if I'm looking at the tour courses, I don't know if these would be like in like my top five tour courses, but I mean, they're still the standout you know having having tracks like these having these dynamic tracks like what you're talking about i do think is going to wind up being the future of the main series when we do eventually see mario kart 9 i fully expect that to be the design philosophy moving forward is having more dynamic tracks like that
1: yeah. Va- Vancouver Velocity is also it's another Sydney Sprint situation too where the song is is one of the all-time great Mario Kart songs. Like it's so good. Yeah. Um and and yeah, like I just love yeah, the the way that course like you're going through the downtown, you're going through the hockey rink and stuff. It's really good. But uh but yeah, that's that's pretty much all that's been uh, going on with me just like yeah, that that night of Mario Kart uh playing a whole lot of Oxenfree free 2. That's that's pretty much it. Uh, and speaking of Oxenfree Two, Eric, and in fact, speaking of fantasy league, yeah, uh, we should talk about this maybe a little bit.
0: We should. I think we owe a little bit of an apology to night school games, uh, as we you know kind of teased on social media earlier. If you're not following us on social media, you absolutely should at All In Podcast on Twitter and Facebook. But you know, Oxenfree Two was it was in the running for our fantasy draft. Basically the entire time. It was one of the games that we were talking about. There were clear things that we had to discuss, like, of course, Super Mario Bros. Wonder uh, and Super Mario RPG. But we knew this was coming out this week, and we we almost pulled the trigger on it a couple times. But ultimately, we weren't super confident at the time. We didn't know because we'd seen some trailers and th- there was a couple things that we felt there was a couple red flags but ultimately that turned out to not be the case it came out and it's it's really good it's been reviewing really well since it released so we apologize night school games for not having more faith in you more confidence in oxenfree 2 the lost signals
1: yeah it's sitting at a 78 right now on on open critic Um, which I actually think is maybe a little low, but I, um, but, but I really, you know, coming into this, you know, there was a lot of things that looked really samey. In fact, there was like a little bit like watching the trailers, like, is this like actually still the same Island? It did look like the same
0: Island still looked like you were going right back to Edwards Island. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I, and I wasn't super sure like what was going on with the story. Maybe that's like my own fault. Maybe if I had looked more into it, I might have you know. But it, it looked pretty samey to me. But um, now that we've actually played it, um, you know, I'm I'm really impressed. And uh, yeah, I I think that we honestly just need to get straight into it because we both have played through the game. Yep. We have explored. All of Kamina. It is a new island. The new <laughs> island of Kamina. And yep. we're here to report our findings this week in the Indie Showcase.
0: <laughs> so Oxenfree 2, the last signal from Night School Games. I hope you guys will uh, accept this uh, Indie Showcase as is a little bit of an apology for not having enough confidence to draft you in our fantasy draft. But uh, yeah, it came out this past week. Uh, july 12th both seth and i played through we've rolled credits on it already and we're here to say uh just like the first one is good game we did an indie showcase on the original oxen free a while back and this is something that we've been looking forward to for some time i want to say we final like this got announced at a nintendo direct back in like october of 2020 or something it was years ago.
1: This has been in development for a long time. It's been like delayed a couple of times, I yeah. think. And yeah, this this one's been been a long time coming.
0: Yeah, but we finally got it. A little weird, I think, that they, they released it here in July. This would have been a perfect October release. But I mean, I'm not going to complain about it. But yeah, let's go ahead and get into it because oxen free for those who haven't played either of these games is a uh I guess 2d 2.5 d I guess walking sim slash puzzle simulator slash narrative adventure thriller
1: yeah yeah it's like a um it's a 2.5 d yeah, you're walking around a big island, uh, like sort of narrative adventure game um you're sort of yeah walking to these different points of these islands uh you know with with various characters has a really unique dialogue system which is sort of the calling card of night school studio uh all of their games have have you know this was introduced with oxen free which was their debut title and they carried it over into after party and now oxen free 2 um and it's this really unique dialogue system where you're talking to the characters you can interrupt Characters you can choose not to say anything. It's got a lot of branching, like choice and options. The story can go a bunch of different ways, Mm -hmm. and um, yeah, it's they're they're unique. Like they, you know, there are other games that are kind of in this space that are kind of adjacent to what Oxenfree is, but I think they have managed to carve out a really interesting little uh, niche for themselves, especially with that sort of walk and talk mechanic, which I continuously i'm like i don't understand why more games haven't stolen this this is probably my favorite dialogue system in any game ever like i just think it's so brilliant and it continues to be brilliant in all of these games
0: well the big kind of calling card and one of the reasons it's so striking is because all the dialogue in the game is voice acted and Mm -hmm. it's like very very well performed. This isn't some. This isn't a case of where they just got somebody from the accounting department to come up and read a few lines. Like no, this is all incredibly well performed, nuanced and layered acting performances uh, from these characters that add a lot of weight to not only what's going on, but each of the different branching dialogue paths. And it's incredibly dynamic because you know, as like the conversation just continues to flow and you'll get up to three different options for, you know, how you can continue the conversation, how you can respond to something that another character is saying. And like my, my favorite thing about it is, You know, you talk about really good dialogue options. I think for a lot of people, stuff like Mass Effect or, uh, you know, Bethesda games like Skyrim and Fallout, they come to mind because of a lot of their branching paths and a lot of their dialogue options. But it's stilted because you have to go to a menu every time and it stops the gameplay. And I understand, you know, especially for the time that was the best way to do it. But the way the conversations and the way the narrative unfolds and the way the character dynamics are built because of the way they're done here is so much more interesting. Especially not only because of the options that it gives you, but there's always a secret extra option. And that is, of course, to not say anything, which is in itself a response. And and it's just it's so incredibly unique, so incredibly interesting. And that alone, I think makes multiple playthroughs a really enticing option
1: oh yeah these games definitely encourage multiple playthroughs and you know these games will change fairly dramatically even beyond like um you know wrote things that you see in a lot of games of this type which is stuff like oh there'll be a few different endings and stuff like this like little tiny moments um, that happen between the characters can be dramatically different depending on how you interact with them and the the dialogue choices you make. Or yeah, like you said, choosing not to make them at all. Like the game is prepared for all of that. The game is prepared for as much or as little as you want to engage with it. And I think that that is really interesting. And it makes sense that like it takes them a long time to make these games. You know, the first Oxenfree came out in 2016. You know, there's been about a three to four year gap between each of their major releases, and it's because of stuff like this. This is all considered, weaving, voice-acted writing that is also really strong. It's also, for my money, some of the best dialogue writing in modern games. It feels natural. It feels like real people talking. And uh, and the the writing staff at, at night school I think is is pretty peerless. It's like in the indie space, like we see a lot of people who who manage to tap into this kind of vibe, but like the the quality of the of the writing here I think is like so strong.
0: Yeah, I, I think a lot of indie studios you'll see fall back on more tongue in cheek, more meme tastic kind of dialogue, and that's great to to get a nice giggle and to be entertaining, but you know, uh, Oxenfree's not that type of game, that it's not here to be a meme. It's here to tell a story, which can be, at times, deeply affecting, disturbing, uh, and even kind of depressing. Uh, so that kind you know, that kind of writing really wouldn't fit here. And it's because of the naturalistic writing and the natural performances that the voice actors give that the narrative is able to come off as well as it does. But I mean... Like, what's this narrative that we're talking about? Who are these characters that we're conversing with? Who are we playing to begin with? So you wind up playing as this woman, (laughs) really old, depending on who you ask in the game, a woman named Riley, who is at this new island, very close to Edwards Island from the first game. And she is working as an environmental researcher setting up transmitters to trying to figure out what's going on with these weird signals that are coming from the area. And the game is initially kind of vague on why she's there. But very quickly, you run into this guy named Jacob, who is also there. Uh, you know, working to set up these transmitters and it all just kind of goes from there. If you've played the first game, you kind of know a lot of the the weirdness that you can expect, but suffice it to say, if you haven't played the games, weirdness should be expected and uh, mostly accompanied by Jacob, Riley and her companion go throughout the night and try to figure out exactly what in the blue world is going on.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah the the game is the the setup of this one is pretty interesting because the the first game is very much like a coming-of-age story with teenagers sort of a goonies stranger things kind of vibe and with oxen free 2 you're playing as adults but it's still a coming-of-age story it's still a coming-of-age story of adults this game is this game poses the question of like Like, hey, guess what? You actually continue aging. You continue having to learn things, even in your adulthood. We're all just figuring it out. We might be adults, but we are still coming of age, you know? And that's kind of what this game says. This game taps into things like parental and familial relationships in a big, bad way. And the stuff that is sort of like, because you have... Um, the focus being much more kind of intimate on just these two characters for the most part. There are other characters that get thrown into the mix, of course, but the vast majority of the time is spent with with Riley and Jacob. And it really, I think, allows these characters to breathe. And like when I first started playing this game, I didn't like either one of them. Like. <laughs> I like the first reaction I had to them was, well, Jacob is kind of annoying and Riley is kind of like always sarcastic and brushing things off. And I didn't really like either one of them, but as time went on and they really started to open up to each other and became more naturalistic in their dynamic with each other, I started to like them a lot more. And you start to realize and learn why they are the way they are. And like the lessons that they still have to learn as people. And, um, that, to, that, like, really worked on me in a way that, you know, and, and I love Oxenfree 1, but, like, Oxenfree 1 is sort of just, you know, like, I would say maybe it's a little bit creepier. It's like a kids in peril sort of story, and yeah. I don't know if I ever got the sense of peril in Oxenfree 2 that I got in the first game, and maybe that's because you're playing as adults, but, like, at the same time, like, I really felt like I got to know the characters very well to so the point where the 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 180 that i did with riley in particular she's like she went from me not liking her at all to being genuinely one of my favorite characters in indie games like i really fell in love with her by the end of this
0: well i mean as with any three dimensional person as with any human being uh that there's a lot going on in their lives they're not just one note uh, they're layered, they have their own experiences, they have their own struggles, they have their own fears, wants, desires. And it's really nice to see actual people portrayed this way in video games. It makes them incredibly relatable. And once you learn about you know another person's life, another person's struggles, it makes them that much easier to, uh, to empathize with. And that's exactly what they did with Riley and especially... With Jacob, you know, you talk about Jacob being annoying. You are with Jacob for the majority of the game, and I've got to say, like, with with the dialogue that, like, they, I, I've got to admit, they went right up to the edge of. I really wish I could just punch Jacob in the face and tell him to shut up.
1: Well, but but what's great about that though is like that is illustrated in Riley's dialogue. You can tell Jacob, like, hey, dude, shut up. Like, yeah, like just like, (laughs) like, so they, they give you that wiggle room and they give you like, they they understand kind of how the player is feeling in a lot of those moments with, with that dynamic. But what I found myself doing was like, you know what? I'm just going to let them go. I'm just going to let them talk and just kind of see where this goes. And it, it kind of like made me think about doing that more in my personal life, you know, just like, let, let them cook, you know? Let them let them go somewhere, and uh, and I don't know. Like I I really I really liked that. It was it was an instance of like mechanics sort of characterized by these two people uh, in a way that I don't know I've really ever seen. There, there's um there's a moment, and I, I don't want to spoil it, but one of my favorite moments in the entire game is between these two characters taking a breather on a bridge. Um, kind oh of
0: yep, yep 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 yep. Going
1: into the game's final act, and it's an optional one. You don't have to stop. You don't like Jacob's like, Hey, can we rest for a second? You don't have to do that. Completely missable moment. You could say like, no, forget this.
0: Let's keep going. Right. It's like, yeah, double time it. We got to save the world. Right. Story.
1: Yeah. But if you stop and have that moment with him, and also there's a moment where you get to like interrupt him. And in that dialogue, that was so powerful because it was something that I chose as the player. And I also didn't have to say that either. You know, like, that. that's why this dialogue system is so brilliant, I think, is because it gives the player, like, so much agency to really, truly role-play like, as these characters. And I think that, that it works so much more strongly than in something like Fallout or whatever, where I'm just seeing one of, like, four options. If I pass my charisma, I can get them to sell me something for cheaper. You know, this <laughs> is way
0: more interesting to me. <laughs> and I... I did try, like in my mind, to not compare the the two games too too much, which is, I mean, it's kind of impossible to do, uh, especially because the two games are connected a lot more deeply than you even might initially think. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't want to say too much more than that, but yes, not only is this a sequel, a direct sequel, but uh, I uh, especially for people who have played the first game, you'll you'll know what I mean, especially further on, you know, as you go. But I didn't want to uh, I didn't want to just have this idea of the first Oxenfree in my head and try to get Oxenfree two to to line up with it, because even though same franchise, same system. These are different characters, and this is a different story. And because the story is really the focal point of the game, there is gameplay here, and we you know we'll talk about it here in a few minutes. But it, it it pales in comparison to the importance of the narrative going on. Um, and if if I would say something, I would say I think the character dynamics between the group in the first one, I thought. Maybe more interesting, but by the end of Oxen Free 2, I think the story being told hit me harder. Mm-hmm. Um, just because of, I don't know, maybe it's just because, just like the developers have matured since making the first Oxen Free, where you play as kids, these people have grown up, you know, they're having kids of their own. It actually kind of reminded me of uh ironically enough god of war 2018 Mm. where the 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 narrative of the game and the focus of uh the story shifted wildly after the game's director had his own child so you know it, it you you really get a sense that the developers are maturing and they you know They've kind of had their own coming of ages story, and now they're in a new part of their life. And what kind of narrative, what kind of story would resonate more with that? It's like we're growing up with the developers, like we're growing up with the franchise. But even though I'm not a parent, even though I don't have any prospects of having any kids, I was still able to, I felt like I was still able to em- uh, empathize fairly strongly with what was going on because. I'm Listen, I'm not going to try to compare the relationship that an uncle has with his niece to the relationship that parents have with their children, but as a proxy, I can begin to understand the feelings at play, if that makes sense, and why the motivations, why characters do what they do, why characters feel the way that they feel, and all of that came across beautifully, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think you have to be uh, a parent to, like, pick up on the themes or understand, like, the notion of not wanting to be the same person your father was or your mother was or whatever, you know, or not wanting to pass on any sort of generational curses or whatever. And, like, you know, there there is, like, a sense of that, you know, throughout the entire game. And another thing this game does really well, and this is just another strength of the incredible writing um, this game has got like metaphors and things and moments that are told through dialogue that are going to stick with me. The penny is going to stick with me. The penny, yeah. you know, like that, that stuff is going to stick with me for a long time. Um, this notion of migration, like there's a point that a character makes about migration and how, how must the other birds feel when they see other birds that are going against the migration pattern, you know? And like, I think I'm going to think about that stuff for a while. I thought that was really like elegant and, um, and beautifully told, you know, and, and, and again, like the notion that we get themes like this in a game that also gives us so much choice is, is really special. Um, you mentioned that the game connects to the first one and it does in a significant yeah. way. Um, yes, it does. and again, no spoilers, but something I was thinking about when playing this was, should people play the first one before playing this one? <laughs> and interestingly, and, 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 and I think this is a huge testament to the game as well. I think
0: it works either way. Like this was a conversation that you and I had separately. Like, mm-hmm. how would we even how would we even do this?
1: Yeah, like, if you played the first one, then I think you're gonna get an experience that is going to feel satisfying and a lot of connective tissue to the first one. But if you didn't play the first one, even if you came around feeling like you were maybe missing something, I think the first one holds up beautifully as a prequel. And like, it's it's really kind of impressive. Like, there are not that many games that I can say that about. You, the God of War comparison, right? If you come into God of War 2018 or whatever and play that and feel like you want to go back and play the other games they couldn't be more different <laughs> you know and the yeah. character of Kratos couldn't be more different and that's sort of the point but I I don't really recommend fans of God of War 2018 going back to the original PS2 games uh, however with Oxenfree 2 like if you are somebody who is coming into this game like yeah you could totally take these things separately and go back to the first one and kind of pick up the pieces and it, I think the game like works extraordinarily well that way. And I don't know that I've ever seen anything like that. Like, I don't think I've ever seen a game tackle that so well.
0: Yeah. The only caveat that I would say to that is, and I agree, I I, I completely agree with you, but the only caveat to that is the first game kind of hinges on, you know, the who mm-hmm. of, you know, the, the who of, of, of who is causing all this weirdness. And they actually spell that out pretty explicitly several times in the second game, just so they can continue to build on. It's like, okay, here's what happened. Here are the stories of of, of this thing, uh, and then you know they they take it from there. Uh, so if you do wind up playing Oxenfree two before Oxenfree one, the 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 big reveal and the big answer to the mystery may feel a little underwhelming if you play Oxenfree as a prequel as opposed to. Playing them in order, but aside from that, yeah, just because you're dealing with two completely different sets of characters going on to their own journey, the <laughs> the weirdness, the apparitions, the ghosts, and all the the craziness that goes on is basically just a filter through which to tell these very human stories, which ultimately is, I would say, the uh, the the reason for for most genres is to be able to take a, a human story and you know add it through a filter to give a new perspective on something that we may have already looked at from a certain point of view a hundred times over right um yeah i agree that with being that. said that being said i i loved a lot of the really and again i'm trying not to compare it directly to the first game but you kind of have to i did hope there was a a few more like really disturbing moments in this one just to, I mean, the, the spooky elements, the thriller elements are there and we've already touched on this. I do wonder if it's just because I've played the first game, I kind of knew what to expect because you run around with two characters. There's just something about running around with an extra character and having that extra person there that adds a, a slightly more comforting sense I guess like you're not in as much danger that plus the fact that they're adults, that plus the fact that the mystery behind what's going on has been alleviated quite a bit, but I don't know if it was any of those, but ultimately with this game, like you were talking about earlier, Seth, I didn't really feel like I was in peril. I mean, quite a few of the dialogue options from Riley when stuff is happening, actually seem more annoyed than anything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which I mean, like, you know, is is her prerogative too. I think another thing that should be said uh, about both the first game and this game is very well written female characters and like female characters that don't feel like an afterthought, you know, which is so often the case in a lot of these games. Like, like the female characters in this game are great, including a missable one that I'm actually kind of upset is missable. Um, she like my favorite character in this game is completely missable I'm just gonna say to anybody playing this game (laughs) just take my advice use the radio play with the radio and play with it early this game unfortunately does not give you too many reasons to use the radio um, which I do think is a misstep I liked in Oxenfree 1 you could tune into the radio to get like kind of like history lessons of parts of Edwards Island I do miss that I wish the game encouraged you to use the radio more Um, but I just, yeah, use it early in the beginning of the game. You'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. There's a character that only exists if you use the radio and it's the best character in the game.
0: Don't miss it. (laughs) (laughs) And he says that because it was a character that I completely missed. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, we, we've gotten this deep into it without really going into a lot of the gameplay. So we should probably talk about the gameplay, at least just a tad because it is there. A lot of it is just kind of, you know, we I mentioned Walking Simulator, which for some people is still a four-letter word, but a lot of the gameplay is just kind of slowly moving from one place to the next, moving from one point on the map to another point on the map so you can trigger the next piece of story. However, uh, gameplay-wise, it all centers around these, these radio waves and these transmissions that's kind of at the core of the weirdness that's going on and you wind up being able to interact with several things in the environment by quote unquote tuning radios or tuning machines to specific frequencies. And this does take a couple different, uh, this does take a couple different forms within the course of the game. Honestly, like kind of reminiscent of some stuff that you'll see in like the Batman Arkham series. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, but you've got some these you've got some tuning puzzles essentially that you'll have to uh, that that you'll have to figure out mostly by moving the left and right uh, thumbsticks around until you just happen to to find the right frequency. Nothing that I think even has a fail state and nothing too difficult. But an always welcome uh, welcome shakeup from just the constant dialogue, which admittedly as good as it is, it is nice to break it up every once in a while. But in addition to that, you've got your standard radio, uh, your standard FM radio, which should be familiar to people who have played the first game, which you can tune to different frequencies that Seth was talking about. Uh, Go to FM 88, apparently. Yep. Uh, But in addition to that, you have a walkie talkie now that has nine different channels for characters that you can interact with throughout the course of the game. You'll immediately get access. You'll immediately meet one of the characters on the other end of the walkie talkie. But one of the really, probably the most interesting gameplay function of the game is the majority of the characters that you can meet over the course of the walkie-talkie and the, the majority of the extra contacts and extra characters that you'll be able to interact with are optional, are missable. It is something that you, in many cases, have to go out of your way to do. Like Seth said, the, the character that he's talking about is completely missable. I can vouch for that because I completely missed it. Uh, and there are several things that you can do, and several entire subplots—not necessarily super deep subplots—but there are like actual little mini stories going on that you can completely miss if you don't take a few seconds to look around and, uh, you know, really take in the environment.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a lot of like missable content in this game, and there's also a lot of variation in the way that. In um, the way that events unfold, depending on how you approach them, depending on the kind of person your Riley is, the dynamic that you have with Jacob, the dynamic that you have with other characters that you're going to meet, both on the walkie talkie or the radio and in person, um, there are events that will play out dramatically differently, um, depending on the way you approach some of these things, which I think is really interesting. yes, you know the, the game's ending. There are multiple endings to the game. Um, I don't know how much variation is in that. I don't think there's quite as much as there is in the first Oxenfree, uh, but I do think the moment-to-moment stuff, the way events can unfold, uh, can be dramatically different, which which is really cool. And like the the little moment-to-moment stuff, if you answer a ringing phone or not, you yep. know, can can be like a actual life-or-death situation. You know, (laughs) and like that is really interesting, man, like to put something like that off the beaten path is really cool. Um, And I do like that a lot. One thing that I don't like about this game is the collectibles. Um, I think the collectibles are a miss in this one. In the first game, you had those like radio station tune-in things that I was yeah. talking about. Yeah, those um, were
0: really cool. I wonder why they took those out.
1: Yeah, I I don't know. I I mean, I don't know if it wouldn't have made as much sense because like the characters are already familiar with the place, so like why would they care to to do that? Maybe maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know, but the collectibles you have here are um, these little, like, letters that are buried that you find throughout the uh, throughout the island. And the way they're handled really sucks. <laughs> like, the uh, they're just shining little points on the ground. You don't really have to do anything other than look out for them. But they only are, like, activated after, like, a certain point in the story. So it's entirely possible for you to completely walk past an area where there is like there is a letter there, but you would have no way of knowing unless you have come back to that area after activating like the event that turns the collectibles on, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. And then even like the, the content of the letters are kind of cool. And I think there might be potentially a little tease for oxen free three, you know, in one of the letters, maybe. Um, but even the way, like the final letter, like I poured over the entire island just combing through to get all the letters and the final collectible doesn't appear until you have collected all of the other ones first. And you just have to like do one final pass through the whole Island basically. So, and and I don't even think you get anything special at the end of the game for doing it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Like that, that was really unfortunate to me that that really didn't land for me. I kind of would have actually preferred if they weren't in there at all, to be honest. So,
0: <laughs> and visually when it comes to, you know, the graphics of the game, I think the game's perfectly serviceable. I'm not going to say it looks amazing, uh, but you know, it, it looks perfectly fine. The island that, uh, you run across this time, was it Camino? Uh,
1: yeah. Camina.
0: Yeah. Camina Island. Uh, it kind of has this feel of a slightly gnarled pre-rendered background. Uh, so it, there's always like just something that feels slightly off and that helps, I think, elevate the atmosphere, but overall, just in terms of visual fidelity, like it looks, it, it looks fine. I will admit the, the character models wind up being so small throughout most of the game that apparently several of the characters you interact with are wearing masks. And I didn't realize that until late in the game when someone specifically says that, Oh, that's funny. uh, <laughs> uh like just that's how the, the they appear in the game, but you know the, it, it looks perfectly fine. So I can't really knock the game too much in that. But I'm not going to say it's like oh this is absolutely a reason to download is because the game looks so beautiful.
1: I yeah I wouldn't go that far, but but I there are like some really I think this game is much prettier than the first one. Um, I was looking at footage of the first one just to compare and contrast, and there is some like visual similarity, of course, but like the the first one has a much more like i guess sort of bleak or like you know washed out color palette um there are a few like sections cuz you know these this takes place in islands off the coast of Oregon you know and like the the island does feel a lot like edwards island uh, from the first game, because they are literally part of the same group of islands. You can take a, you know, a ferry from one to the other and people often do kids that lived on Kamina would work over in Edwards Island, you know? Um, so I, I think that that makes perfect sense, but there are a couple, I, I took many screenshots playing this games. So there are a couple of really pretty points, uh, in this game. Another thing that I think is an improvement over the first one is the navigation of the island. Um, the map in the first game is kind of rough. It is, it looks like a real map in that like, it doesn't have like the actual pathways carved onto it. And this game does, which is a godsend Um, (laughs) like to actually be able to pull up the map and see exactly like how you're supposed to navigate the areas. I think is like a huge, you know, a huge godsend. And uh, you know, uh, just like in the first game, Riley will leave little notes You know, you're never really like questioning too much where you're supposed
0: to go or what you're supposed to do. Uh, I will say when it comes to the performance of the game, both Seth and I do have something to say about that. Um, The game will probably take you around four to five hours to complete. For me, that was interrupted by a single crash. I had a lot of crashes. Yeah. Yeah, for Seth, apparently more so. Yeah, I had a lot of crashes. There, there's a
1: there's a pretty climactic moment um, that happens going into the game's final act, uh, where there's like a lot of stuff happening. I actually had to replay that moment three separate times because because uh, the game kept crashing. There's also no manual save, which is really annoying. So yeah. you um you have to like essentially every time you enter a new area is when a save happens. Um, Or sometimes there'll be a checkpoint if you're in an area for a long time or whatever. But I had to replay that one part like three different times. I was getting really mad, actually. Um, And then there were a couple of crashes that happened for like seemingly no reason. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, I I don't really know why that is. Hopefully there's a patch coming. Your mileage may vary. Like, you know, Eric had one crash. I had, I only had one. I think I had six by the end of my playthrough. Ooh. Okay. Um. So you know, th- there's there's quite a lot, and then there's um there's a gameplay mechanic that comes in that I don't think we should spoil. Um, that alters the state of the world. And oh yeah, yeah yeah yeah. The the game would kind of like uh, some of my crashes. I think had to were were involving that too. So I think this game is actually running like a lot more things under the hood than you might think it is. And I think the game kind of maybe struggles to keep up a little bit. So that
0: that was unfortunate,
1: but your, your mileage
0: might vary on that. I will say just in regards to that mechanic that you're talking about, there is one specific puzzle uh, that happens to deal with uh, uh, what year. Yeah. Uh, something happened like the different things that you can do with that puzzle are incredibly intriguing and I would absolutely love to see, frankly, an entire game just based around being able to do stuff like that. The types of layered puzzles that you could create with what they did with that one section of the game are like it's so mind-blowing. I really hope somebody takes the idea that was introduced there and really expands on it
1: which is neat, which is neat. And I think stronger than like, I don't think there's a moment in the first game that is that good in terms of like the puzzle solving and stuff. And, you know, the first game I think doesn't ask as much of the player as, as this one does in many ways. I do
0: wish there was just more of it. That's honestly, at the end of the day, I wish there was more of it there. I mean, you do wind up coming across several different variations of several different types of puzzles. Uh, but even over the course of five hours, I still would have been perfect. I honestly would have been perfectly fine if there was double the number of like radio interaction and tuning and puzzle solving within the game. I would have been perfectly fine.
1: You can honestly probably count the amount of like actual puzzles you're solving on your two hands, if maybe one hand. Like it's it's pretty, you know, there, there aren't that many like big moments, but the big moments are big. Um, which, which I like, and there are a couple of like, uh, I don't want to call them set pieces, but there, there are a couple little like action moments that, that I think are done really well here too. And I I just think overall, like I, the, the feeling that, and you and I both shared this sentiment after we'd beaten the game, like, I do think that this is, you know, I, I, there are some things that I prefer about the first one, but I do think that overall, um, I liked this one better which is not mm-hmm. what I came into this one thinking that I, that's not the experience I thought I would have. Um, and I do think that the story and the characterization and the writing is, is stronger in Oxenfree too. And like, yeah. I think that Oxen, like when you, when it comes to this franchise, that is so much of the strength. And all I wanted at the end of this one was a third one. <laughs> you yeah. Know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it just, it feels like there needs to be, I mean, even outside of creating a trilogy, which in and of itself feels like a nice cohesive package, there does feel like a couple things that could very well be tied up with a third game, which, you know, based on release time means we're probably not going to see until 2028, 2029 anyway. Uh, but yeah, I would love to see a third one. We do have a couple, you know, slight issues with the game specifically when it comes to the the crashing but the main focus of the majority of the game Oxenfree 2 absolutely nails unlike you know at a level unlike most other game studios on the planet so the big focal point of the game just absolutely knocks it out of the park we have little nitpicks here and there and a couple things that I really hope they uh, address for uh, the the threequel and a couple patches, I hope they come out for performance issues. But the thing that we would always recommend people get into the game for is one that is handled near flawlessly, and that's the the characters and the narrative and the dialogue system.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure. And also, quick PSA before we wrap up: uh, the first Oxenfree is on sale uh, for just a dollar ninety nine until July twentieth. Oh, so. I mean Dude, that's yeah. a no-brainer. You should all for that price. You should all you probably have enough gold coins laying around yeah. to get that. <laughs> so I recommend it. I, I I really love this series. Bring on Oxen Three.
0: <laughs> yeah oxen 3. Oh, no like me being the physical collector i am i just I, I imagine having like the oxen free trilogy collection physical that would make me very happy but yes uh similarly to you at the end of this i just wanted another one and i might wind up playing through i really might wind up playing through again just to see how different things can do it just so yeah. i can meet that character that i completely missed that you're ranting and raving about you got to
1: meet maria uh, she's so I've, good fair,
0: i've Apparently, I've got to meet Maria. A uh, lot of great characters, a lot of great dialogue, a lot of great story. Make sure to check it out. Uh, just final consideration, there are some disturbing themes going on in the game. If we haven't made that incredibly apparent by now, uh, they do have kind of a uh, a disclaimer at the beginning of the game. But yeah, there are some pretty heavy things and pretty heavy themes at play throughout the course of the experience so just do be aware of that yeah
1: yeah and if you play it let us know uh this is the perfect game for the spoiler zone in our discord oh yeah uh so yeah i would i would love to chat with
0: you all about oxen free too Yeah, join the Discord, reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter. Let us know what you guys thought of Oxenfree 2, The Lost Signals, if you picked it up or if you are going to pick it up or if you're going to pick up the first game for that ridiculously low price of $1.99. Well done, Night School Studios again. We apologize for not drafting it.
1: <laughs> Should have drafted it. But Eric, you mentioned before uh, physical collecting is definitely a thing, not only for us, but also for our community. And there mm-hmm. was a pretty, uh, a low key. This is maybe another situation where we underestimated uh, how good this was going to end up being way better than we expected. LRG three, Uh, threw on one heck of a presentation we of course broke it all down in the news roundup live uh, that we do on friday nights on youtube and uh posts on the podcast feed as well uh, if you want the full breakdown but we definitely wanted to take time in the main show to highlight some of our favorite announcements from lrg3 this week in the top five all right, Eric, our top five favorite announcements from LRG3
0: 2023, what are the rules? Well, for this, it's pretty straightforward. We are talking about all of the announcements and notifications that we got during Limited Run Games Eponymous uh, showcase from this past week. Now, we are going to say uh, we did know about a couple of these. A couple of these were known quantities prior to the show, but... Uh, But as long as they were held as announcements at the show, we are still going to count them. This is not necessarily games that we heard or announcements we heard about first at LRG. So uh, there's, you know, a couple specifically that, uh, that that might all, you know, kind of immediately obviously apply to. But you'll see what we're talking about.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. And uh, we're just going to get straight into my list. Kicking off my list with my number five. uh, My number five is actually a game called Another Crusade, um, which is this interesting, like, Super Mario RPG-inspired game. Very clearly Super Mario
0: RPG-inspired. Well, Um, they specifically cited Mario RPG, like, immediately within the trailer as... So I wonder if they had any inkling that Mario RPG was actually going to be re released later on
1: this year. I mean, probably not. But I got to be honest with you, like the the visual style of another Crusade to me captures the tone of Mario RPG way better than even the remake does. Um, Don't get me wrong, I'm excited for the remake. I think the remake looks beautiful, but the remake is pretty like cleaned up, and this game just kind of captures like the sort of grittiness like the weird like claymation almost ugliness of mario rpg that i really like um and i don't know how good the actual story or the characters are going to be the character designs aren't doing all that much for me although another thing that's kind of interesting about the game is that the like characters all sort of look like dolls. Like they're all just Genos essentially. yeah, That's
0: true. That's true. That's a good point. Which, which I do
1: like, I do think that's pretty neat. Um, and it's supposed to come later this year to the Nintendo switch, but it really does look like it's sort of like capturing those Mario RPG vibes, specifically the original. Um, it's not cleaned up and polished and I kind of like that about it. So I'm intrigued by this one.
0: Yeah, the UI, you know, like we've seen some images and stuff since the initial announcement and even in the trailer, like the different UI with uh, the choices being uh, presented as essentially just a, a button mapped menu around the heads of the main characters in the isometric turn based battle system that clearly looks like it employs time tits. Yeah, even if they didn't overtly mention Super Mario RPG as a massive reference for this game, it was plastered all over this trailer. So if you were excited about the Super Mario RPG remake, this is one you should definitely have on your radar.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Going into my number four, it's actually just the announcement of a Nintendo Switch port of a game that I genuinely would not have expected would ever come to the Nintendo Switch. This game that, uh, it's an Xbox 360 game that I've never met another soul mm-hmm. that has played yeah. it. Um, it's El Shaddai Ascension of the Metatron. I remember I was working at GameStop when this came out and, um, when it came out, I think it either launched at $20 or very quickly, uh, was discounted to $20. It was cheap. And I remember being like, dude, what is this? Like clearly it had some sort of like religious connotation. And so I bought it just out of sheer, sheer curiosity. And what the game is, is like this strange, Hack and slash beat them up with some of the most interesting visual, like art direction that I think I've ever seen in a game. Um, the gameplay itself is like whatever, it's fine, but like the journey that you go through, it's like if Psychonauts and Final Fantasy like had a baby that read the Bible or something. Like, it's <laughs> it's weird and interesting and like I truly didn't think this was ever going to get ported up to modern consoles. This is for like nobody. This will probably sell, you know, maybe a thousand copies period, but I'm happy that it's being made at all.
0: (laughs) Well, see, this gives me the chance to finally play it because I've, I've never played it. I'm not a person you have met who has played the game, but this was... Like, I always noticed El Shaddai. And I'm not just saying it because it was it was announced at, at LRG and I want to sound like the cool hipsters. Like, I was always a fan of El Shaddai. It was always a game that I was so close to pulling the trigger on for, like, yeah. the entirety of the Xbox 360 lifespan. I was always so close to just pulling the trigger because the few people like yourself the few people who I'd heard play the game had nothing but glowing things to say about it and I was also really surprised to see this uh, announced because you know you know word of mouth is one thing and being a cult classic is one thing but things need to at least have the opportunity to be profitable so I do wonder what their marketing strategy for this is going to be I wonder if they think that just because they're LRG it's going to sell which Frankly, might actually be the case. But, uh, but yeah, this was a game that deserves a second chance. and I'm glad that it's getting it.
1: Yeah. Quick, quick anecdote related to my time at GameStop and this game. Uh, when it came out, uh, the store manager at the time, uh, his name's Fred. Shout outs to Fred. You know Fred. Um, I know
0: Fred. Yes, I do. I we, actually worked for Fred for a short time.
1: Yeah. We, uh, he was the one that hired me at GameStop and, uh, We did like every now and then when you're an employee at GameStop, this is before I even entered into management. I think when this game came out, uh, we did like a mock, like customer interaction sort of thing as part of like your training. And Mm -hmm. he like grabbed a random game off the wall, like thinking like, oh, like let's really test this. What is he going to know about this game? And he grabs it and I just told him all about El Shaddai. And like he just had this slack jawed look on his face like you actually knew about this game. I was like, yeah, I bought it, <laughs> you know, so it was just, that was really funny. I, I, every time I think of this game, I think of that moment. Uh, so, yeah, shout outs to El I? We don't know when it's coming. Apparently it's coming to the Switch at some point this year. And uh, yeah, I'll be buying that for sure. Um mm-hmm. my number 3 is actually uh coming really soon on the 25th the console the Nintendo Switch version of this way madness lies um which is the latest game from Zeboid Games who is most known for uh penny arcade game Cthulhu saves Christmas
0: um yep, which we did an indie showcase on uh, yeah. was it last
1: Christmas is either last Christmas or the Christmas the before. Christmas before, yeah.
0: Maybe, yeah, I don't know. Cosmic yep. Star
1: Heroine, you know. Cosmic yep, absolutely. Um, really good sort of like retro style turn-based RPG developer. And I've had my eye on this for a long time. This came out late last year on PC and I've just been patiently waiting for it to come to <laughs> Switch because I'm just like, I'm excited to finally get a chance to play it on Switch. Um, this is... I swear to God, this is real. A JRPG turn-based JRPG set in the world of Shakespeare
0: yep. with magical girls. <laughs> and it looks great. <laughs> Ham- Hamlet meets sailor moon.
1: I like, I am so excited to finally get a chance to play this. And it's very soon. It comes out on the 25th of, uh, of this month. I, I cannot wait, um, to, You know, just if if you are somebody who's familiar with Shakespeare, just listen to this. The main character is the leader of the Stratford-upon-Avon High Drama Society, which is the school that these girls attend. That is very good. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to playing this. So just, just the announcement of that coming to the Nintendo Switch as soon as it is was very exciting for me. So I had to give that my number three. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, my, my number two and my number one are actually kind of like these, you know, something that, that we have said and celebrated on the show before is when an independent developer can take a game or a concept that has sort of been lost to time and bring it into the modern age with, you know, a new, you know, like a, a brand new IP. My number two is an example of this double shake. Um, which was a brand new announcement here at LRG three. Double Shake is very clearly a spiritual successor to Mischief Makers and Clonoa. Yeah, and it looks incredible. Uh, yeah. Don't think it's coming this year. It seems like it's still early on, but like it looks so good, and it looks like it's exactly like its inspirations are worn so clearly on their sleeve and. I just love everything they're doing from the visual aesthetic to the gameplay implements. Um, Yeah. Bring it on. Like we, we saw plenty of announcements of like physical versions or ports of, of games like of this type, but to get a brand new, you know, independent IP that is sort of picking up the torch that mischief makers shook. um, You know, (laughs) here, here we are with double shake, man. And I
0: could not be more excited. I just love the fact that we finally reached the point where everybody, where all the indie uh, developers are just like, man, you know, nobody really gives enough love to those N64 platformers. And they were all really good, huh? I was like, yeah, most of them were. So, but yeah, now we've got stuff like Double Shake. We've got uh, that, what was that yo yo adventure we just saw at the yeah. Nintendo Direct? Penny's Big so Breakaway. Got, yeah. Penny's Big Breakaway. Thank you. So, we've got a lot of really cool retro inspired 3D platformers coming out soon. And this, I mean, it looks like it's really nailing uh, the inspirations. And oh, man, it's, it's, you know, as being incredibly nostalgic as I am, I, Oh man, it it actually hurt me. There were so many good announcements from this that it actually hurt me to not put that one on my list, but that doesn't mean that I am not also incredibly excited to see that when it comes out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And even just the fact that it's called double shake is amazing. Like the whole, the whole thing, like the catchphrase essentially of mischief makers is shake, shake. So Mm -hmm. for this to be called double shake alone is just chef's kiss. Um, but my number one, if you had told me coming into this, that somebody was going to be making a spiritual successor to the Zelda Philips CDI games, <laughs> I would not have believed you, but sure enough, RZ, the jewel of Faramore just looks like this wonderfully cheesy love letter to the Philips CDI. Not only is it very clearly taking inspiration from the Zelda games, but hotel Mario also mm-hmm. like, yeah. There's a shot in the trailer that just is Hotel Mario. And I just, I love that somebody loves these this much that they're out there making this work and just like, and to see excitement for it. And certainly like for me, like I'm the kind of like, I, I, I'm not really interested in playing like a game with no rough edges You know, where it's just like not at all like this has so much love baked into it. These like MS paint looking drawings, you know, lovingly animated and like it it kind of looks intentionally bad. And um,
0: I just it was made specifically to look like it could have actually released on the CDI and it nails that.
1: Yeah, man. I just, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited for that release it's coming out later this year. And, um, that, that one just smacked me in the face. Like, oh my, for a brief second, I thought they were actually going to say that they somehow got yeah. the yeah to when re-release. Were- <laughs> yeah. I, I thought they were going there. I was like, no way. But uh, but RZ, the Jewel of Fairmore, is kind of the next best thing. I'm very happy it exists. Uh that had to be my number one. Quick uh, honorable mention, because I I don't know what's on your top five, but one game that I want to shout out that I know isn't on your top five is Rose and Camellia. Um that is just this bonkers looking like punch out like slap out, I guess really like <laughs> this Jane
0: Austen inspired sl- yeah. like
1: slap game. <laughs> you take the joy con and you, and you have slap battles like punch out uh, in a world inspired by Jane Austen. This like Victorian, you know, sad women with roses. Like I just love it. It looks great. And so. no
0: part of that sentence was a lie.
1: Yeah. Honorable mention to, <laughs> to
0: Rose and Camellia. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. spoiler alert, that one's not on my list either. But I didn't think it would uh, be. <laughs> uh, But speaking of your list, Seth, could you just run down your list one more time for our lovely fans?
1: Yeah, for sure. My number five was Another Crusade. My number four was El Shaddai, Ascension of the Metatron. My number three was This Way, Madness Lies. My number two was Double Shake. And my number one was Arzette, the Jewel of Faramore.
0: And we certainly weren't expecting like i was personally excited for this i buy a lot of of indie physical editions so i had already you know set aside a certain amount of my budget for the next 12 months for what i was going to see here but i don't think either of us were expecting the level of presentation that we wound up getting this past week and there were so many really cool things shown off that a game that won a golden ace from us just two years ago didn't even make my top five. Wow, I'm surprised uh, by that. I I can I'm absolutely buying that chicory physical edition day one. I am one thousand percent. Yeah, uh, but yes, uh, but to start off, my number five. Hey, Seth, you want to talk about Arzette for a few more minutes? Let's do it. my number five (laughs) is Arzeth, the jewel of Faramore and exactly what Seth was talking about when I was watching the show and they specifically invoked the name of those, uh, you know, of those legend of Zelda, Philips CDI games with all the different licenses that limited run games has been able to get over the past few years. Like they're doing a ton of stuff with Konami. I, you know, uh, The Castlevania Advance collection was long listed for me today. That's not on my top five, but I'm also super stoked for that. They're working with a lot of big companies. So it wouldn't have completely surprised me if they had been able to secure the rights to those Zelda CDI games. And my initial thought was like, oh my God, are we actually getting like a Wand of Gamelon? And are we getting a Zelda CDI collection? No. However, when I did see all the footage and I saw everything for Arzette and just the faithfulness of it, because when it comes to emulating a certain style, when it comes to giving the same vibe, the same feel as something as singular and unique as a Philips CDI game, to be able to nail that just speaks to the incredible level of passion of those involved. And a game that has that much passion behind it is worth, is basically worth my attention. Yeah. Uh You know, the Philips CDI as a console was famously bad, but... The the there is it's still such a really interesting footnote in not just video game but Nintendo history specifically, and I'd still you know I've said this before on the show I would still genuinely love uh, a collection of Nintendo's Philips CDI games a physical collection of Nintendo's Philips CDI games but I will happily take this as uh, a next best option because it still looks genuinely good. I just hope that the one thing they don't carry over is how clunky it feels to play. I do hope it at least feels satisfying to control when we finally get our hands on our Z. but at least from the vibe and at least from the art style and the aesthetic, they have absolutely nailed the CDI look. And it's something that I cannot wait to check out when it eventually comes out on the Nintendo switch at some point.
1: Yeah, it's supposed to be later this year, and uh, yeah, I I am just I am so into this game. Um, yeah, bring bring it on, man.
0: Yeah, uh, another studio, another big studio. Talk about uh, big licenses and big studios that LRG has partnered up with for some of their editions. This is a big one, and this was actually a game that we found out about prior to the presentation. However, the announcement of it was essentially wrapped all up in LRG3, so I'm still counting it. I'm a huge, huge fan of Digital Eclipse. Atari 50 won our Golden Ace for best collection or remaster, re-release last year. And of course, the the Cowabunga, the TMT Cowabunga collection is similarly amazing. So at this point, I'm willing to basically come 90% of the way on whatever Digital Eclipse is doing. And this interactive documentary that they're working on with Karateka. Yeah. This 40 year old game that they're producing with multiple different versions and some other stuff. But again, because of the museum, You know, one of the things we love so much about Atari 50 is the fact that it basically kind of was an interactive museum and very much a love letter to the entire 50-year history of Atari as a company. And they're basically taking that approach with this game. Yes, it's just whittled down to a single project, but this idea of an interactive documentary, this kind of new approach to a video game really has me interested and digital eclipse is so high on this idea. So high on this project that they're working on that they've already come out and said that this is the first in a line of a new series they're working on called the gold master series.
1: Yep. supposed to be getting another announcement later this year for the second uh, entry in that series too. So that'll be cool.
0: Yeah, but with as uniformly quality as these projects have been from digital clips, I'm super, super excited to see what a interactive documentary even looks like and to see if you know (laughs) to see what else they have up their sleeve for this entire series. Super, super excited. But going into my number three. Uh, I'm about to send a lot of love to way forward over the next couple entries because <laughs> way forward uh, very strongly uh, hinted at their involvement in Lrg3 right. and apparently that was a lot deeper than anybody expected because we are getting an actually new slash old. Shantae game. My number three is Shantae Advance.
1: hmm Basically, it's a new game. I mean, like, it is the
0: lost GBA game, right? Yeah, it's it's the lost chapter of Shantae. Matt Bozon was on hand during LRG three. They had a big interview uh with him where he specifically talked about it as a game that you know really bridges uh the first Shantae and the subsequent entries in the series. Uh, they talk about, you know, interactions with characters and then meeting for the first time and, you know, things that are kind of taken for granted later on in the series that actually happen in this game that they unfortunately had to shelve at the time because the initial sales of Shantae on the Game Boy Color weren't as strong as they would have liked. So at the time, pitching a Shantae sequel was a little bit more difficult than they anticipated. They were, of course, able to co- to eventually continue the series but this was a game that thankfully Matt Bozon kept all the assets for and they kept all the the work that they put into this and 20 years later they're going to be able to finish it and put it on an actual Game Boy Advance cartridge and release it into the wild no switch port as of yeah no switch port announced as of yet but i absolutely love this i love the fact that this team is able to take a game that was basically dead for 20 years. And because of the love and passion of the industry, they were able to to resurrect it and finally finish this lost chapter of one of the most beloved indie series of all time.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited about this too. This is really neat. Um, yeah, no, no, like digital version of it announced as of yet. I'm sure that's going to come.
0: Yeah, I'm um, sure it is.
1: But but yeah, this this is going to be really this is going to be really special. It's cool they got the chance to do this.
0: Yeah, it is. Uh, super, super. This is definitely not what I expected to be the next Shantae announcement <laughs> after Shantae and the Seven Sirens. Uh, but yeah, oh, it looks so good. It looks so, so cool. I can't wait to finally get my hands on that. But that wasn't the only way forward announcement from this presentation. Seth, they're remaking Clock Tower from the Super Famicom. Yeah, they are. Yeah, this is a big deal. My number two is Clock tower the original cult classic 16-bit horror game that was never brought over to the uh to the west i mean i understand why it was a very japanese kind of setting and you know the point and click adventure aspect of the game there was a lot of uncertainty about whether or not that would jive at all with the setting with the gameplay setup with western audiences so I do understand why it never got released, but it is a shame, especially in the intervening years where the series has continued and eventually became like a true cult classic franchise within the horror genre. So, so excited. i never got the, I've never had the opportunity to play the original clock tower and I cannot wait. Limited run games. Capcom I think is even working on this. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, you know, Wayforward is working on this. A lot of people are working to bring this together. New animated sequences and we saw some of the new key art for for the remake. So they are really going all in with this. Pun definitely intended. Uh but yeah, this was this was one of those games that I've kind of always had in the back of my my mind, one of the wishlist games that I would love in some way, some form to finally get the opportunity to check out. This one is, is right up there for me in terms of my most anticipated releases uh, of the next 12 months. I cannot wait to finally get the opportunity to play clock tower on the Nintendo switch. I'm so excited for this.
1: Yeah. I'm excited for this too. I, uh, this, this is one of those that like, it's, it's really cool. I'm going to be really curious to see like how, how well it holds up like in, in modern and to modern scrutiny. And I'm curious to see more about, Like the the touch of their doings, they are redoing some of the
0: assets, and uh, I'm yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing more about this. I am too, man. I cannot wait. Uh, But my number one may feel like a bit of a cheat. However, they treated it essentially as an announcement, so I'm counting it. My number one is LRG's carbon engine. Mm, Okay. They touted this this carbon engine, this, this setup, this piece of software that they're using that is helping them essentially bring a ton of classic games to modern consoles. And, you know, uh, several of my honorable mentions for this list would have been the Gex announcement that ended the show. Absolutely would have been uh, the Gargoyles Remastered that's coming soon. Absolutely excited for the Jurassic Park collection that's coming soon cannot wait for all of those and at the heart of a lot of these retro games coming back to modern consoles is this carbon engine that lrg is working with and the thing that makes me excited about this is we've already seen some insane announcements that the carbon engine they're working with has allowed them to make i cannot wait like to think that that's potentially just the tip of the iceberg because the way they touted it as this is something we're doing now, we're basically just getting started. The way they presented it was not in the, Hey, here's this project that we finished up and we just want to tell you guys how it's done. They basically said, Hey, we've got this awesome new uh, engine now that opens that basically just the dam is open now at this point. So, the thought of what else could potentially be on the horizon for <laughs> for my poor nostalgic wallet, uh, just what they could potentially announce the games that they could potentially bring back, and what this does for preservation uh, could wind up being you know in completely regardless of of how excited people would be. To see games and be you know have them available to play what this could potentially mean just for preservation for the long-term preservation of specific video game software means a lot so that is easily my number one is the idea that so so many of favorites from years past could potentially be on the horizon to come back into our our grubby little hands i cannot wait Seth.
1: Yeah, they uh, the Carbon Engine was sort of like rolled out and really sort of given uh, top billing, especially going into the sort of final segment of LRG3. Yeah. Um, we have seen a couple of Carbon Engine games. That's how the yep. original Shantae port was yep. able to happen. Uh, River City Girls Zero is a Carbon Engine game. Um, so, you know, this, this seems to be, I mean, I don't know what the logistics of it are. I know that it is emulation based and I know that, uh, MVG modern vintage gamer is the, the helm of the carbon engine project. Uh, (laughs) but they, from what I understand, have an engine that is able to take emulation as a base and translate it into modern, uh, modern hardware fairly easily. So I'll be interested to see like how much further this goes, you know, it's a neat idea. It's a neat initiative and hopefully it is easy to work with. And hopefully, you know, this excites, uh, you know, IP and and rights holders of, of these like classic games that can find a new life, you know, on modern platforms. So a really cool initiative.
0: Yeah. Just, I mean, like you just said for the rights holders, because of how big LRG has gotten uh, the, the thought that they could, fairly easily translate an old piece of software re-release it on modern platforms and sell i mean even a modest number of coffee uh coffees uh to be able to sell even a modest number of copies and continue to make money off of something or make you know or make money off of something again that has basically just been sitting on someone's hard drive for years Hopefully that excites a lot of rights holders that they start actively engaging start actively reaching out to LRG because, you know, if they just want to open a full on publishing wing, it's like, just, just start pumping them out like a factory. I'd be more than happy with that.
1: Yeah, man. Well, let's run down your list one more time, my friend.
0: Absolutely. My number five are Zet, the Jewel of Feralmore, the CDI spiritual successor from the Zelda games, my number four, Kerateka, the interactive uh, documentary from Digital Clips. My number three, Shantae Advance, finally coming to us from Way Forward. My number two, Clock Tower, from also Way Forward, and my number one, LRG's Carbon Engine, the gateway through which many of our nostalgic uh, favorites will hopefully re-enter the modern age.
1: Nice. Nice. So well, let us know what you guys thought of uh of LRG three, what your favorite announcements were. We have a lot of like collectors and physical collectors in our community. Yep. So uh I'm sure there's gonna be some excitement for this. Mm-hmm. And uh, and again, you know, shout outs to, to LRG. It was I gotta be honest, their their presentations have been very hit or miss for me in the past, but uh but this one was great. This is genuinely really good. So yeah, well done. Well done, LRG.
0: Absolutely. And You know, speaking of, uh, speaking of, you know, classic gaming, speaking of nostalgic gaming, speaking of legendary gaming, Seth, today, as this episode is going live, is quite the auspicious occasion.
1: Especially in Nintendo history, today marks the 40th anniversary of the original Japanese release of the Famicom, uh, and we're going to tell you all about it with a full, all-in retrospective <laughs>
0: all right
1: that's right everybody the tale of the tape here for the famicom released originally in japan july 15th 1983 of course here in North America we wouldn't get it until 1985 when it was the Nintendo Entertainment System but specifically here today to chat a little bit about the original release of the Famicom in Japan a couple of interesting little tidbits a lot of interesting little pieces of Nintendo history really just gaming history in general mm-hmm. um the the release of the Famicom you know, I mean, the 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 Nintendo Entertainment System, when it when it kind of properly released in 85 was like the, you know, the the apex, like that was when it really exploded. But it all did start here 40 years ago now with the Famicom.
0: It absolutely did. And very, very interesting timing because this just happened to, you know, it was the crash of, it was a video game crash of '83. Atari and ET and, and that whole debacle had just happened. So Nintendo was trying to release this brand new console into the wild right around that same time. And, you know, I actually learned a lot about the Famicom and its history over the past few days. And there's so many interesting little anecdotes and so many interesting little tidbits when it comes to this console. But just looking at it in terms of large picture, just big picture, the video game industry, like its it's not hyperbolic whatsoever to say that the landscape of the video games industry looks the way it does right now in large part due to the release of the Famicom, due to the release of Nintendo's 8-bit system. Uh, To say that that system rejuvenated the entire industry and set it on its world-conquering path today, I don't think is an understatement. The impact of the Famicom, just right here at the beginning, the impact of the Famicom cannot possibly be understated. I would I would genuinely like to see the timeline where the Famicom was never released. I'm sure eventually we would have gotten some type of of interactive entertainment akin to video games with the enhancement of technology and um you know, as you know as software and hardware continue to evolve. But the way the video games industry looks right now, like you can you can basically trace. Everything back to this one nexus point back on July fifteenth, nineteen ninety three, and the release of this little white and red plastic box.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's even just the the design of it is is interesting in and of itself because you know making a, a home video game you know there had been other home video game consoles before, of course. Of course, but, um, the the Famicom was a you know this this notion of Nintendo who had seen success in the arcades wanting to bring this experience to the home market. And, you know, major competition emerged at this point, too. Something that I learned when uh, when I was researching this and learning about the history of the Famicom is that Sega's original home video game arcade system, the SGE-1000, also released on the exact same day, uh, on July 15th, 1983. This is also the 40th anniversary of that system. Uh, which is crazy that they released yeah. on the same day. Now the Famicom, of course, ate its lunch, um, but it was still—it's it's still kind of like the genesis of that famous rivalry as well. These two—you uh, know—companies that had both seen success in the arcades, trying to like get a bite at this apple. Um, it's interesting because when this launched, you know, we wouldn't see Mario. You know, the defining character, we wouldn't see that properly kind of come onto the scene and explode until the NES, until we got it over here in the States. Uh, So this system for years had to, for like two years, had to exist without Mario, which is like weird to think about now with 40 years of hindsight.
0: (laughs) Well, they had like we had Mario Brothers, but we didn't have like Super Mario Brothers. Right. That was really the game that uh, that that changed everything. But it was thanks to the the chip that came with uh, the Famicom, which was being used in a lot of arcade machines at the time that allowed for scrolling, which was a very novel concept for for video games, and it was something very famously that was hard to work on on PCs, which was what allowed video game consoles to, to even exist at that point as separate from PCs and releasing the Famicom as an actual PC, as a personal computer. I mean, it was called the family computer, but releasing it as more of a computer was a very viable option for Nintendo at the offset. Uh, Like, there were originally plans in place to release the Famicom with a keyboard and, you know, a more traditional uh, computer-style disk data management system. Like, it was going to be Nintendo's personal computer for all intents and purposes. But they decided, I say they, Mr. Yamauchi decided to pivot to the much more simplified just simple video game console for the sake of, you know, not being too complex for, uh, you know, being something easy and approachable for its user base. But, yeah, that was a very real option for the Famicom at one time is to release as a more traditional style computer product and not just as a dedicated video game console. But another big thing, you know, we talk about the, the disc and it would eventually get its own disc based uh, system, which we'll talk about. But, you know, the the, uh, the they did wind up taking a huge cue from Atari and from ColecoVision as opposed to having games that were ingrained on their console, like their color TV game that Nintendo had released prior to the Famicom. They did decide to, you know, move toward a cartridge-based uh, game system, which would allow for, you know, the distribution and creation of games for for years to come. So just that idea um, was also a huge hallmark of the success of the system.
1: Yeah, I mean it's we're we're still you know feeling the effects of that today. I mean our Nintendo Switch is still running on, you know, proprietary cartridges like that, which is cool. And um, I I think it's interesting too, like you said, like this notion of wanting to use it. They they're originally looking at it as a much more like PC corollary. Yeah. Um, you know, it, they eventually would release, you know, not only programmable software with family basic and a keyboard uh, to, to work with it as well. They would wind up releasing that later, but Yamauchi, I think correctly, um, you know, posited that it was too intimidating to position this thing as a home computer. And in fact, uh, one fun fact that I liked reading about the, uh, the lead designer of the system was Masayuki Umura and mm-hmm. his wife is the one who suggested the change of the name. It was originally going to be called
0: Gamecom. Gamecom, yeah. (laughs) Which they would eventually use, not Nintendo wouldn't, but we would eventually get a weird knockoff console called a Gamecom. But to think that that was originally a name that we could have gotten so weird.
1: I just love that he credits his wife as like, yeah, let's like, this is even this, like implies that it's like a personal computer. That's not what this is. Let's call it a family computer. And that's what Famicom means. And I just, that's such a fun little story. And I, I just love that. I love reading about how Yamauchi decided on the striking, I still think it's a pretty striking design. The, the red, white, and gold design. Uh, um, which
0: was apparently, I, I, wasn't able to confirm this, but apparently that was based off of an antenna being sold in Japan at the time. He saw a
1: billboard for DX antenna, uh, that utilized those colors and, and those colors. That's what inspired him to color the, uh, the Famicom that way. I think stuff like that is super interesting. I think really just kind of like shows a human hand in, in making this stuff. And when you look at even the like launch lineup of of this system. It was like Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr. and Popeye. (laughs) You know, it's their arcade
0: games. It's just ports of their arcade games. So, well, I mean, Nintendo started out obviously as an arcade company. Donkey Kong was their biggest success. So especially here in 83 just a couple of years removed from the creation of of course they're still going to to try to to milk Donkey Kong for as much mm-hmm. as they possibly can so that makes perfect sense that they're going to release Donkey Kong but it was their experience within the arcades and the fact that they were trying to use the same technology that their arcade machines did uh especially for you know the the versus series but uh, not the, you know, like Capcom versus, not that versus series, folks, not that versus series. Uh, but they were trying to use the, the same technology from the versus series so people could get an authentic, you know, approaching an authentic experience from the arcades at uh, the home, you know, at the home console. And I say approaching, while it would still be a long time before we would get large scale arcade perfect ports of video games like the ports that we had to deal with for the atari just look at the pac-man port that the atari 2600 got like that was the level of discrepancy that we're talking about is look at the pac-man arcade game look at pac-man on the atari so the little bit of of change from the donkey kong arcade to donkey kong on the famicom i it it looked to players like it was basically just the same game, and that went a long way toward developing a lot of confidence with uh, with the user base, especially in Japan, and allowed Nintendo to like, okay, you know, we've gotten a little bit of goodwill. Let's try to follow that up. Let's try to release more and more games. And a lot of the original lineup was just first party titles, which I mean doesn't really shouldn't really surprise anybody. Uh, especially in 83, because of the crash, there weren't a lot of people attempting to develop video games that were just willing to immediately go all in with a new console that was hitting the market. They, uh, you know, Nintendo came in and they released a bunch of their own games. And all of a sudden these developers were like, oh, this is actually profitable. This is successful. This is something we can make money on. Okay, you know, we'll jump on board. And Nintendo was like, yeah, but you're going to pay us for it.
1: Yeah. 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 You had to, I think, I think it was Namco, I think was the first one to be be
0: subjected to that Nintendo tax. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We love Nintendo. We do, but they put like a 30% tax on Nintendo third-party games at that time nintendo was absolutely ruthless in yeah. the early 80s on i mean if they're still kind of when it comes to their business practices they're still ruthless to be to be fair but yeah man that was yeah ugh.
1: yeah first first partners in, in that uh in that third-party capacity were namco and hudson soft and you know famously once it got to a certain point where they were letting people play in the playground, you know, this is something the Nintendo Seal of Quality was a thing. They took it very seriously. Eventually, each publisher was only allowed to release five games a year. And very yeah. famously, like, there are publishers that exist because of workarounds. Like, Ultra Games and Tengen were created to basically be a workaround for that. Konami was like, "Yo, we've already released five games. Uh we should probably go ahead and create another publishing label to to find a loophole, basically in this rule for the Nintendo Seal of Quality." Atari ended up doing the same thing, um, which is really interesting. It's it's I don't know, like just that that notion I think is really cool. And they did have like scrutiny to releasing
0: those games too. Yeah. Like you couldn't just was release an anything. Actual you approval wanted. process. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean it's not like today where right. literally anything it feels like literally anything could wind up on the eShop from day to day uh th- that that was one of the biggest things that people were concerned about in the the mid 80s was this idea of Like, are these games actually going to have any quality to them? Are they going to be any good whatsoever? So that was a huge initiative for, I mean, for many years. that It got to the point where we took it for granted to see that big golden seal on the front of games released for Nintendo systems. That huge Nintendo seal of quality. And that originated as a way... For Nintendo to develop confidence with the user base is like, listen, we've tried this game, we've play tested it, we can promise this is a product that, you know, t- this isn't just something that somebody coded together and we boxed up Is like this is an actual game. You can be confident that people, you know, that this has been an approved piece of software. Right.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that's really, that's fascinating, man. Um, and, you know, another thing that I think goes maybe a little undersung about uh, the Famicom, I think it really is an early example of Nintendo having fun, little innovative ideas. Some of these come from uh, somebody like Pei Yokoi. Some of them come yep, from Oemora, yep, yep, yep. Um, And they integrated something like the second controller on the Famicom has got a microphone in it. <laughs> and, like, that's really funny because when Uemura was originally thinking, it was like, oh, it'd be kind of cool if, like, you could, you know, if kids could, you know, yell into the microphone and hear it on the TV, but they would wind up doing some interesting little things with it. For example... In the Famicom version of the original Legend of Zelda game, there's an enemy called Poles Voice that, like, in the American manual, it's like, yo, these, these, you know, rabbits, these rabbit-like enemies hate loud noise, which shouldn't make any sense. What it was referencing is that the way you defeated them in the Famicom version of the game is by yelling at them through the microphone on the controller. Like... (laughs) That's so cool. And (laughs) that's the kind of thing that we would sort of see be integrated in things like, you know, the GameCube ended up getting a mic, the Wii ended up getting a mic. Of course, the DS and 3DS had one built in, you know. So it's, it's, it's neat to see the genesis of this all the way back then.
0: But it speaks to, you know, just kind of the shrewd business practices of Nintendo at the time that they were able to take a a brand new console releasing in the midst of a floundering industry and turn it into such a success. Yeah. It wasn't an overnight success, but Nintendo was very serious about quality control. And there were a lot of really interesting ideas coming out around that time. Like Seth has already talked about, but it was their conviction and it was their, uh, it it was their commitment to this quality control that ultimately won people over. And eventually, Eventually, they were like, "Okay, I think we're settled enough. We've got enough of a foundation. We've got enough of a base. It's time to look international." And I've seen some crazy things about the Famicom and some of its international releases. Uh, originally, originally, Nintendo, was going to work with a completely different company to release, uh, uh, what was it? The Advanced Video System mm, Bundle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Nintendo had its set to the North American market with Atari. They were actually going to release the console in America with Atari. Uh, weirdly, despite being heavily influenced by the ColecoVision, Atari's competitor, they were actually looking to, to release it in the West with Atari, but ironically enough, like that fell apart because of ColecoVision, because ColecoVision was also publishing Donkey Kong at the time. I guess illegally? Yeah,
1: like and like a port of Donkey Kong without actually having the license. And Atari was the one that had that license, I guess.
0: Yeah. So, uh, you yeah, know, video game licenses in the 80s was the Wild West. Yeah. Uh, we actually did a review on Tetris, the movie from Apple TV. Go ahead and check that out if you want to, you know, get a little bit of an insight into the way, you know, video game licensing was an absolute uh, mess in the 80s. But, uh, but that wound up torpedoing the deal with Atari in the West, in addition to the fact that the person they were working with at Atari would wound up getting fired like a month after that. So after that deal kind of got put on ice, a month later, leadership at Atari wound up changing drastically. So Nintendo <laughs> was forced to go somewhere else. And uh, they wound up, of course, uh, releasing the uh, Nintendo Entertainment System in 1985. They showed it off the Consumer Electronics Show. And of course, they bundled it with Super Mario Brothers but uh, you know, getting to the point where they could actually release it in stores was a really rocky road for Nintendo.
1: Big time, yeah. I mean, like you before you even get there, like they they have to work with the versus system. Yeah. Like they're putting arcade games essentially in the North American market. Like it was a big, it was a whole to do to uh to to get this thing over here at all. It's kind of a small miracle that we that we wound up getting this stuff at all. But I also just you know at least quickly wanted to shout out. The, like, innovations that they, you know, because this is so early in the life of, um, you know, of, of video games and, and home video game consoles, like, they were super experimental with it. People like to make yeah. fun of, like, how many attachments that the Sega Genesis had. The Famicom yeah. will say, like, yo, hold my beer. You could put a modem on this thing. This yeah. thing had the, the Famicom network system that you could attach to the top of it and connect to the internet in 1988. Like, that's crazy. You could, like, check the weather, send emails. Like, that's kind of nuts. Apparently, you could even, (laughs) like, manage your bank account and make live stock trades with it.
0: (laughs) This is 1988. Technology. Yeah, they were, yeah. Video game peripherals and the the capabilities of what people could do with video game consoles was absolutely nuts back then. Uh, But it was so weird Because you look at the Famicom, you look at the NES, they are vastly different designs. A lot of people, it surprises a lot of people to know that they're functionally the same system because they look nothing alike. And like the whole top loader versus front loader with the door, the cartridges look completely different. They made a ton of, you know, design changes for the Famicom before wound up releasing in the West. And I just, I find that fascinating because I mean, you look at video game consoles now, like the American PS five looks the exact same as the Japanese PS five. The, the Xbox series X that releases in Italy is the exact same Xbox X that releases in the UK, but the NES and the Famicom, like that was just indicative. There were so many different variations and design variances on nintendo's 8-bit system that honestly i wasn't even aware of Mm -hmm. uh there was one company what was it um yeah uh the uh, nintendo entertainment system models from uh yeah working with uh omora uh from sharp
1: yeah yeah the tv one or whatever yeah yeah i saw that yeah, yeah, there, there was, was a bunch Famicom
0: of system that actually had a, a a TV built in. There was a weird, like rad, kind of, uh, uh, green, blue, and black one. Yeah, uh, and then they had something that actually kind of looked more like uh, an Atari version of the system. Uh, in addition to that, you know, a lot of people talk about either the Famicom or the NES, but there were other versions of the system that got released in other markets. In Brazil, they wound up releasing a version of the Famicom in 1993. Brazil actually wouldn't get uh, Nintendo's 8-bit system until 1993 because of the prevalence of clones and uh, illegal copies at the time. There were so many clone video game systems being sold in the country that Nintendo decided, you know, despite... The, they just basically decided not to even jump into that Snake's Nest uh, and go figure when they eventually released the Nintendo Entertainment System as its version as the Brazil uh, as the Brazil as the Brazil version in 1993 it wound up not selling well because it released after the Super Nintendo in the region go figure. Uh, but apparently in India it was called like the Samurai entertainment video game console or something
1: so crazy (laughs) i I, yeah i i love junk like that another another thing that we should quickly at least talk about too speaking of like peripherals attachments innovations um is the famicom disk system i mean we we should just spend a a second on that because um for those who don't know the famicom disk system came out in 86 and essentially Mm -hmm. it is adapting like floppy disk technology which they didn't necessarily want to adapt it first for the reasons that we'd mentioned earlier uh, at the request of Yamauchi. Um, but of course, like being able to, you know, have rewritable, uh, you know, plastic shell discards, um, you know, offered a lot of flexibility for, for fans and they had, Like the ability, not only could you go and buy these on the store shelf on little like, you know, old school looking, you know, floppy disks and put it into your Famicom disk system and play uh, these games. But you could take it and rewrite those those games at a disk writer kiosk that were in stores all across Japan. That's where Diskun is from. He's the mascot of the Famicom disk system. So you could go in pay you know five bucks or whatever download you can get blank
0: you know uh blank disc blank cards. Discs and, and write and, it with and, brand new games yep you can take the discs you have and rewrite them with games they actually had a disc system to where you could upload your high scores from certain games uh so but yeah cool. it was it was nuts uh yeah though the whole idea of uh you know having rewritable Video game cartridges, video game discs, video game media was really interesting. Initially, it came about because of spatial uh, constrictions on the, the cartridges. They had hit a little bit of a plateau in the mid 80s, and they initially decided to go with, you know, discs and this rewritable media because at the time... It gave developers more room to work with, and it actually opened up the possibilities for games on the system at the time quite a bit. But yeah, just that. Into- Imagine taking a Switch cartridge to a Walmart or to a Best Buy or something, and sticking it into a kiosk, and it popping out with a brand with a completely different brand new game on it. That's nuts.
1: I mean, could could you like, if we had the ability to do stuff like that when we were kids, like I can only imagine what a magical experience that would be for, for kids to be able to do that. It's so cool. It's, it's really neat. And the the proof was in the pudding. It became the most successful console add on of all time, which is not, you know, that, that is not like a, uh, there's not stiff competition in that, in that list. There's not a whole lot of uh, console add ons, but you know, this thing ended up selling four and a half million units by 1990. And they continued to manufacture hardware and software evidently until 2003. Till
0: 2003, 20 years! Which 20 is nuts. 20 years! That That's is crazy. So crazy.
1: They were still offering tech support for the Famicom disk system through 2007. Like, that—that that is nuts to me. So I don't know, like I just just the disc system alone is such a neat facet of the Famicom.
0: (laughs) And when it comes to Nintendo history, there's a lot of stuff, especially when it comes to console uh, additions that we've never seen. Basically, uh, each of Nintendo's first three generational systems, the Famicom had the Famicom disc system, which we never really saw an equivalent for in the West. Uh, the Super Nintendo had the whole Satellaview thing, yeah. which we never really saw an equivalent for in the West. And then, of course, the N64 disc drive, yep. which like was never really a thing in the West. But when it comes to the Famicom disc system, that's just so fascinating to me because they continue, like, I, like you said, they continue to release games for a long time. Uh, but it was like you had a, a video game system that worked on both cartridges, and these floppy, well, the hard disks. I still yeah. remember when the floppy disks—they were, were actually hard floppy. Yeah, they, they were actually <laughs> yeah. floppy. Yeah, back in my day.
1: <laughs>
0: but yeah, that's like the same types of games that we were sticking into our personal computers that could work on your Nintendo now. And not only that, you could rewrite them. Uh, unfortunately, you know, as successful and cool as it was. There were a lot of cracks that started to appear pretty immediately in the system. Before uh, Nintendo started putting shutters on the discs, the the game data could get corrupted fairly easily because there was nothing to really protect it from the elements. And, you know, something that was essentially just a piece of film isn't nearly as sturdy as, you know, a cartridge and uh, a board. But in addition to that, it was apparently also incredibly easy to pirate something that Nintendo, I'm not sure if you're aware of has been historically against.
1: Yeah. Not, not big fans of that. It's just kind of cool. It's, it's cool. Look back at this super cool. Yeah. It's yeah. And it's neat to see like, you know, obviously it was a different time. We're going back, you know, 40, 40, years and like, it's, it's neat to see like how much, Gaming has has changed since then, but has also sort of stayed the same um, in in a lot of these respects. And I I also want to give a quick shout out to the Famicom cartridges, not only just for the disk system, but for the standard Famicom cartridge. I still love the way they look. The colors are like just like for the most part, they have like actually colored cartridges and they're still so cool to look at. Like, I just love seeing, like, just a pile of Famicom cartridges. You know, so striking. <laughs> like a little compared- rainbow. Yeah, like, so striking compared to the normal, you know, gray NES cartridges that we got. And, like, every now and then we would get a gold Zelda card the as a treat. Gold Zelda, yeah. Right, but (laughs) yeah,
0: it's like, like, yes, America, you've been good. You can have this gold cartridge this year.
1: Yeah, but when you're playing like Yoshi on the Famicom, it's a green cart, man. You know, like when you've got Mario three, it's a yellow cart. Kirby's on a pink cart. You know, I just I love that. I just I even just looking at it is is joyful for me.
0: But obviously, I mean, we don't even really need to say, but most of Nintendo's uh, franchises that began on the Famicom are now many of gaming's most iconic and most recognizable franchises. The Famicom uh, system, of course, saw the original Super Mario Brothers. It, yep. of course, saw the original uh, Legend of Zelda. It, of course, saw the original Fire Emblem. And, I mean, the list goes on. Uh, it wasn't just because of the technology. It was because of the games. It was because of that Nintendo seal of quality, and Nintendo making sure that they were putting out quality software, quality products, and the fact that so many of the games that Nintendo released, both in-house and uh, you know with uh, their third-party partners, with Hudson Soft, with Bandai Namco, and you know with Capcom and and others, have gone on to become genuinely iconic pieces of video game history. Uh, you know, even, you know, you want to talk about Hudson soft, even stuff like adventure Island and bonk while mm-hmm. not on the level of something like Mario or Zelda or Mega Man are still fondly remembered footnotes in video game history.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I just think, you know, I, I love, I love looking back at this because like it just, you know, it, it's, it's a starting point for so many things with with video games in general, but certainly with Nintendo, and like we we can still you know we can see the genesis of a lot of what we still love Nintendo for today, all the way back on the on the Famicom, man. So yeah, big big shout outs to the Famicom.
0: Absolutely, and we actually did a, a list a while back on uh, some games that uh, we'd still love to see come to the West from uh, from Japan, and there were a couple of games from the Famicom that we mentioned, so make sure to go check that list out, but yeah, just an iconic piece of video game history, cannot, I, I honestly cannot overstate its impact on this industry whatsoever, uh, what an insanely pivotal point in the history of video games, congratulations on 40 years, you gorgeous white and red box
1: (laughs) 40 years man we uh and this is certainly this is far from a complete history we'll leave that to the professionals but it it was fun to kind of dig through it a little bit and um and and give some of the the interesting footnotes because there's so much i mean if you really want to get into the weeds and research this yourself there is so much more i mean we could have been here for another hour just talking about you know the the journey that the famicom went on it's it's a fascinating system
0: the boards and the, the the technology and, you know, the different, you know, plugs and, and, and stuff like that. And it, it really is really cool. But, yeah, it's very easy to get lost in the weeds. But such an amazingly interesting story. And one of the, like I said, just one of the pivotal moments in the history of this industry. But, you know, let us know if you guys have ever actually played a Famicom. What your favorite Famicom games are? Reach out to us on Facebook at All In Podcast on Twitter at All In Podcast. Come join the conversation in our Discord. We would love to talk some Famicom. What's your favorite Famicom inspired merch that you have? Do you have one of those cool Famicom inspired DS or 3DSs or uh, Game Boy Advance SPs? Join us and let us know. Make sure to follow us on YouTube as well. Uh, YouTube.com slash All In Podcast, where of course each and every week we break down the week in Nintendo news. And, uh, you know, with all the content that we create with this, the main show, with all the stuff, all the videos that we release on our YouTube channel, we also create amazing exclusive content for our patrons.
1: We do. Patreon.com slash all in podcast. Head over there, see which tier works for you. Three tiers of support, seven day free trial to the Golden Banana tier, which gets you access to both of our weekly Patreon exclusive podcasts. Uh, Shout outs on the show, a whole lot more. Discounts on our merch at bit.ly slash all in merch is available as well. So we really appreciate everybody who supports us over there, throws a few bones our way for our hard work. But. If you can't throw any bones our way, we do understand. You can support us entirely for free by dropping some words. Of course, as always, on Apple Podcasts, on Podchaser, and Audible, you can leave us five-star written reviews that I'll shout out here on the show. And on Spotify, you can leave us a five-star rating. Uh, very, very free and easy and appreciated way to support your favorite independent Nintendo podcast.
0: Thank you. Yes, very, very appreciated. For everybody who has dropped words, a massive, massive thank you to all of our amazing, amazing patrons. Listen, you all are legends. You know it. You are. And honestly, just a huge thank you to everybody who has even just shared our content somewhere, somehow across this vast and amazing internet of ours. To all of you, we just want to say namaste
1: namaste another one down dude we uh we did it we have we have trounced through gaming history a little bit mm-hmm. uh, had some fun talking about the famicom looked forward to some stuff coming from lrg and even managed to uh to spend a good long time telling the folks about oxen free too it
0: was a good week it was a good week was a very good week we we always have a good week here at all in but uh we always have stuff to look forward to as well i mean yeah We got
1: a, this weekend is Splatfest, uh, for one thing. So we got, we got to see which, which ice cream will reign supreme,
0: (laughs) uh, for sure. But you and Anastasia pick your uh, team yet.
1: Yeah. We're going to do team mint chocolate chip. We're, no, gonna go, figured, we're gonna I go. We're gonna go for that. So we're we're doing that, and that's gonna be fun. Like I said, sometime early next week, I'm gonna try to put something together for Mario Kart. So if you're not already in our Discord community, join up for that. Um, again, you know, voting for the fantasy league. There's so much stuff like community driven stuff happening, and then
0: like let's not forget that next week, Pikmin four. Pikmin four comes out next Friday. Cannot wait going to be one of the biggest releases of the second half of the year for Nintendo. And, uh, don't forget to also check. Yeah. Don't forget to check out Seth's video on the YouTube channel of his playthrough.
1: Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, Pikmin four is great and all, but also Stephanie comes out next week and that's, the Oh, real... that's true.
0: It does. Oh man. Yeah, I forgot. Oh, wow. That's yeah. the
1: real goatee. That's the real game of the year coming out. Pikmin four <laughs> is great and all, but I ain't touching
0: <laughs> it until I've rolled credits on Stephanie. I promise you that. So, yeah. yeah, Stephanie coming out from our friends at Analgesic Productions. The same people behind Even the Ocean and Anodyne 2. Both games that we've done indie showcases on. We even spoke to Analgesic Productions on the show in the past. Uh Wonderful, wonderful people. Cannot wait to see what they have next. But, yes, Stephanie is finally releasing on the Nintendo Switch next week. Uh, it What seems like it was kind of a surprise to them as well. But, yeah. I mean... We'll see. Regardless, super excited to finally have that on Nintendo consoles. We got Pikmin 4. There's just always so much more to look forward to. We're officially in the back half of 2023. So much to look forward to. But uh, guys, we've got to go. But we will see you right back here next Saturday for another brand new episode of All In a Nintendo Podcast. Until then, I have been Arzette, the Eric of Faramore.
1: And I have been the Sethler's new allies we'll see y'all next week you love very much bye bye